0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm
2: Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
0: Denmark is famous for social democracy, the political drama Borgen, and comfortable yet stylish interior design. What's less well-known are its not-so-supportive policies on immigration, And Keith Jarrett, who has a new album out, is among the greatest living pianists. Our correspondent describes an extraordinary innovator known to be as tough on himself as on those who have dared to disturb his performances.
2: First up, though.
3: These are the the little Havanas. They're like Cuban sandwiches. So those are the ones that come with pulled pork, Swiss cheese, and diced ham.
2: Raymond Rodriguez runs a food truck selling empanadas with his wife Natalie. Right,
4: so a beef, a shrimp, three el maduros, and one sugar baby. It's gonna actually be twenty-six even.
2: We're at a farmer's market in a beautiful, refurbished old red-brick mill in downtown Pawtucket, Rhode Island. You can buy craft beef jerky, shea butter soaps, an array of knobby root vegetables, and other farmer's markety kind of things. Last Wednesday, the only hot food came from Spanglish, Raymond and Natalie's truck. And around dinner time, they're doing a brisk business. But higher costs at the pump and at the markets has made it harder for them to turn a profit.
3: It gets to the point where you can't even look at the prices no more because if you don't get it, you ain't running, you know? So it's like you just have to buy and When you get to the registers, like, this is not what I paid yesterday, but today is what you're going to pay. It's been a tough process, I feel.
2: High and volatile prices are also being felt by their customers. That special
4: occasion. So yeah, I guess it would be the kind of a, a special thing, not necessarily something we'd come weekly for. We do have to be careful with spending. I, I am going to go cook dinner now when I get home, so this is a dessert for us.
2: And things haven't just been tough in Rhode Island. America is struggling with inflation levels not seen since Ronald Reagan's first term. Annualized inflation hit 8.3% last month. Voters across the country cite the economy as the most important issue in the upcoming elections. In this... The latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're talking about inflation. Democrats don't want to talk about it, but Republicans want to be sure voters blame the party in charge. For the past couple of months, we've been going to different House districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Rhode Island's 2nd District, which covers most of the state. The last time a Republican won this seat was in 1988, but with the incumbent retiring after 11 terms, the race to succeed him is surprisingly tight, and economic concerns are at its center. Rising prices have hit Raymond and Natalie's business, Spanglish, especially hard. Food trucks sit at the intersection of two of the biggest drivers of inflation, rising food and fuel costs. And one price rise has been especially painful for the couple. Cooking oil.
4: Our oil was the, obviously the biggest thing for us. We fry our empanadas. That's like, you know, that's our we'll bread and butter. Our regular price when we first started was $19. The next week it was 24 And then the following week it was $30. And the fo- it literally was like a week. Every time we went to purchase it, it was like another $10 more, $10 more, until it got to 60 And we were like...
2: <gasps> Inflation has a range of causes for cooking oil and a lot of food. It was largely down to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The two countries supplied about 75% of the world's sunflower oil, and with exports restricted by the war, the prices of cooking oil spiked around the world. And that spike has forced Raymond and Natalie to make some difficult decisions.
3: We've definitely had to bring up the prices about two times in the last 12 months. Unfortunately, we didn't want to do it the first time we did it. Inflammation was going up at the supply stores. It was going up, gas prices, so it forced us to put it up.
4: And there's definitely been kickback from the customers. We make empanadas. People are used to it's it's street food and it's and it's quick and it's it's usually cheap. You know, it's a dollar, two dollars, the most for most people. And we we're at the point where ours are five dollars. You know, and most people go right away five dollars for one. You know, and I mean, really, if you broke it down, well. Yeah, actually, that's that's kind of lowballing what I really should be charging.
2: According to figures collected by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, half of small businesses say inflation is the biggest challenge facing them right now. And 7 in 10 say they've had to raise prices. And for Natalie and Raymond, even with the price rises, they're taking home less than they were before. So there's economic angst, and Republicans are hoping that angst will be the defining issue of the election.
4: Yeah, but thanks to all the jokers in Washington, we're paying twice as much for everything. It's awful. Awful! I'm
2: Alan Fung, and I approve this message because we... In the 2nd District, the race is between Republican Alan Fung, a former mayor of Cranston, the state's second-largest city, and Democrat Seth Magaziner, Rhode Island's treasurer. This race should be an easy win for Magaziner. Biden won the district by 14 points in 2020. But Fung is ahead in the polls, and the result is a toss-up in the economist's midterm model.
1: Alan Fung has a careful, thoughtful approach. You know, he's not extreme one way or the other. He's a very moderate candidate.
2: Sue Sienke heads the Rhode Island GOP. She says Fung's moderate appeal has helped him and hopes economic concerns will do the same.
1: So, you know, we have a great ground game here. We are actually knocking on doors and talking to actually residents in Congressional District 2 and throughout the state. We approach the doors and we say, you know, what are the issues that concern you? Eighty-seven percent of the families that we approach say inflation is the number one issue.
2: In polls carried out last week for The Economist by YouGov, an online polling firm, One-third of Americans say that inflation and the state of the economy are the most important issues for them personally. But being concerned doesn't necessarily translate into voting for Republicans. That's what Sue Sienke, and thousands of others like her around the country, are trying to change. Sienke blames Democrats in Congress and the White House, especially the COVID relief bills they passed for fueling inflation.
1: They passed these outrageous bills to throw more money into the system and it created the inflation that we're seeing now. So we've got to be very careful about what the government does to control, you know, some of the issues that they've done.
2: And Sienke isn't wrong. Some of that legislation did contribute to inflation. Economists reckon that of the 8% inflation America now has, about three percentage points is because of fiscal policy so big spending bills from D.C. But that includes the first COVID relief package, signed by Donald Trump.
5: The U.S. economy is a massive fuel tanker, and it takes a lot to kind of turn it around. And somebody sitting in the White House passing this or that legislation or this or that executive order is in the short term going to have a marginal Impact.
2: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor, based in Washington.
5: That said, when you look at some of the legislation that has been passed in the last 18 months, so starting with the infrastructure bill and moving through the chips and science, and the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, they will have a big impact on the shape of the economy, you know, potentially for decades to come. So I wouldn't want to undersell the impact of the president.
2: And when focusing on inflation... It's also easy to overlook the success of other parts of the economy.
5: The amount of job growth over the last 18 months has been absolutely tremendous. The number of workers in the American economy today is a little bit higher than it was before the pandemic. The unemployment rate is just 3.5 percent, which is incredibly low. So it's, it's a good time to be looking for work.
2: But then for business owners like the Rodriguez's, it makes hiring and keeping staff much harder. So there are a couple of ways of looking at the economy right now. And increasingly, the lens you pick depends on your party. On the
5: economy, as in all matters, the partisan divide has been getting bigger over the years. And studies have shown there's now greater polarization in perception about the economy than there used to be. So when a Republican is in the White House, Democrat voters are more pessimistic about the economy and vice versa. And so if you look at polls right now... You know, an overwhelming majority of Republicans, 90% plus, think the economy is in a bad state. For Democrats, it's closer to the 50-60% level.
2: In every election, the two parties trade barbs over who would be best for the economy. Republicans currently have the lead. In a Gallup poll released this month, 50% of adults trust them more, compared with 40% for Democrats. That's the widest gap in 30 years. For those respondents to The Economist poll who said that the economy or inflation was their top concern and also predicted they were definitely or probably going to vote, about two-thirds said they'd vote for a Republican for the House of Representatives. But for people who put any other issue as the most concerning, Democrats led by 18 points. So it's clear why Democrats are keen to change the conversation to literally anything else. But the next month might not make that easy for them.
5: So the rate-setting committee of the the Federal Reserve will be meeting exactly a week before the the midterm election. And so it's all but guaranteed that, you know, on November 2nd, there will be another jumbo rate rise of three-quarters of a percentage point, the fourth consecutive one. So that will obviously be um, you know, big news and, and will have an impact
2: on, on the market. And though the markets expect a rate rise, they'll be looking to what the Fed signals for the future and might react dramatically. But other signals may be more concerning to voters.
5: I think the price in the economy that matters most of all to people is the price of gas. We know that the OPEC production cut is going to hit next month. If oil miraculously stabilizes and even declines a little bit, that obviously will be good news for the Democrats. If it starts flirting with $100 a barrel again, that would be very, very bad news for
2: the Democrats, very good news for the Republicans. But right now, Raymond and Natalie don't blame either party.
3: I'll be honest, you know, is I've I've had all different type of emotions. I don't really feel like there's much control on this stuff, not even who's in office. But I feel like we was in a better position before.
4: I really can't put the blame on anyone specifically, to be honest. I, I'm, I blame the pandemic, I'm not going to lie, of course. But I mean, this was kind of just uncharted territories. Uh, but is it going to change the way I vote? I'm not 100% sure. I'm not going to lie to you.
2: For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. And subscribers can join the Checks and Balance team, including me, for a live Q&A discussion about the midterms. We'll be exploring the most heated races and considering what their outcomes might mean for America. And you'll get a chance to put your questions to me and the team. We'll be live at 9 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. on America's East Coast, on Thursday, October 27th. You can sign up now at economist.com slash ChecksWebinar. And there's a link in the show notes. You can also find all of The Economist's midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022.
1: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
2: Earlier this month, Denmark's Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, announced a snap election six months ahead of schedule. With Europe embroiled in an energy crisis triggered by Russian aggression, it's perhaps no surprise that her campaign is focused on security. But in 2019, Frederickson's center-left Social Democrats came to power on an altogether different platform. Then, Fredriksson promised two things to the Danish people— support for traditionally center-left issues and a far stricter immigration policy. The latter, at least, is something she's delivered in her three
6: years in office— Denmark is lionized as an egalitarian society, but its approach to non-white migrants suggests equality is only for some Danes. John-Joe Devlin is a senior producer on The Intelligence. The country's stated long-term goal, as outlined in a speech last year by Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen, is to receive no asylum seekers at all by 2030. And to achieve this, the government is pursuing policies based on deterrence and externalization. Tell us a bit about those policies. What do those terms, deterrence and externalization, mean in practice? Well, they're interlinked ideas, but externalization essentially means finding countries to send asylum seekers to so they never set foot on Danish soil. And their current focus is on securing refugee camps in Rwanda to house asylum seekers. It's a similar policy to that that's already in place in the UK. But while that plan is underway, a range of other deterrence measures are already in place to make life hard for refugees. Take the jewellery law, for example. This was brought in in 2016 and legalized the seizure of valuables, including cash, family heirlooms, in some cases even wedding rings, carried by asylum seekers arriving in Denmark. The justification here was that these people who had fled war and persecution should pay their way through the system. That's just the tip of the iceberg, though. So tell us about the rest of the iceberg. Well, there are other controversial policies coming out of Denmark. In 2019, the government decided to revoke the right to remain of many Syrian asylum seekers from Damascus after deciding that the region was safe to travel back to. And this went against rulings from the UN and the EU. In some rural areas of Denmark, local governments have made pork a mandatory part of school lunches as a repudiation of Muslim communities. And another policy saw the Danish government ordering underage asylum-seeking couples to be physically split up on arrival. Now, that final policy was later deemed illegal. And in 2021, the minister who implemented it, Inge Stolberg, was indicted in a rare impeachment trial. She was sentenced to 60 days in prison. But this year, ahead of the election, she founded her own party, the Danish Democrats, that is currently polling at around 8% support in the Danish population. Why has Denmark, of all places, adopted such vile policies? So, in the 2010s, gang violence was perceived to be an ever-growing problem in Denmark. Certain diverse areas like the Nørrebro district of Copenhagen became synonymous with turf wars and shootings, and minority groups were seen as a large part of the problem. That drove political demand for some kind of government intervention, But the Danish approach can also be traced back to the Europe-wide refugee crisis of 2015, the Syrian war and the devastation that came with that led to huge numbers of asylum applications across the continent. And that's when Danes really doubled down on anti-migration policies. At the core of this were concerns about what Danes call social cohesion. And this idea has not only driven refugee law, but also bled into policies that affect natural-born Danes. How so? Well, one of the most striking policies was what was originally termed the ghetto list when it was brought in in 2010. Each year since then, the government has scored neighbourhoods across Denmark based on a list of negative criteria. So things like the unemployment rate, the crime rate, education and income levels. But there is an ethnic component here, too. A neighbourhood can only be designated a ghetto if more than half the inhabitants are descendant from non Western countries. So to be clear, it's not just migrants who are caught up in these numbers. Even second and third generation Danes, who perhaps have parents who were from a non-white European country, are swept up in the definition of non-Danish and contribute to the idea of a ghetto. And what does this ghetto designation mean for people living there? Well, there are a host of penalties imposed on people living in these areas. People convicted of misdemeanors, for example, receive twice the penalty if they live in a ghetto. Various groups, including those receiving public welfare, faced restrictions on moving to certain areas too. But as of 2020, a new range of policies aimed at ridding Denmark of ghettos altogether came into force. It introduced forced evictions into the mix. And I actually travelled to Mjölndeparken, a much publicised ghetto in Copenhagen, to meet those affected by this. There I met several people who'd been handed eviction notices in May, notifying them of plans for their removal by September. In the shadow of Miona Park and this big housing block, I spoke to Sarah Kadeem.
4: You can sit here.
6: Thank side. you. Would you like coffee or tea? Please, a coffee would be great. She monitors a staff playground and community centre. Nearby, kids were skateboarding, playing basketball, and she had this incredibly sunny and open disposition. But as she told me about the effect that evictions were having on local children, yeah, that changed.
4: Yeah, one day we, was, we were sitting here and there came five boys from Mühlenepacken and then one of the guys he was almost crying and he told can you write a letter for me and I was like for what a letter to who and he said I want to write it to the one who owns Mühlenepacken because I want to write that this is my home and I don't want to move and I always get so emotional now because they talk like it's our home I'm born there I don't want to move and then you just sit there and say yeah that's kind of hard Hmm.
6: The Danish government says the changes are designed to create more diversity across the whole of Danish society and that residents will be rehoused in new areas. However, families facing eviction as soon as November told me it was still unclear where and when new permanent accommodation would be provided. John-Joe, that's a
2: really bleak picture you've painted for us. How are these policies playing into the upcoming election?
6: Migration is actually playing a far less important role in this election than in previous ones. Now, one of the reasons for that is that economic issues facing Europe this winter are just taking up a lot of airtime. But another reason is that the anti-immigration arguments of the far right have been increasingly accepted and even co-opted by some on the left, like Mette Frederiksen. And the effect of this could be seen in a recent televised debate between the leaders of the 14 parties running in the Danish election – when asked about the government's plan to start sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, all had varying critiques of the policy, but it was broadly supported. Even critics of Fredrickson, like radical Venstra, the radical left, have found it difficult to find an alternative solution that would please voters. Of course, this trend has not been universally popular by any means, and one of the people I spoke to in Mjolnir Park who did not want to be named said she was disappointed by the Social Democrats.
4: Like uh, six years ago, I feel more safe with uh, Social Democratic today. Today, no go. Today is like, oh my God! I need like protection everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm really like disappointed and angry. And, and
6: but that said, the Social Democrats currently enjoy a healthy lead in the polls, which perhaps isn't too surprising, as studies show Danes are among the most intolerant Europeans when it comes to migration. In a 2019 YouGov survey, one-third said they thought immigration brought only harm and no benefit to the country at all. And to what extent are these sorts of policies outliers compared with other countries in Europe? Well, Denmark stands out compared to its European counterparts. In June, the EU published a report on Denmark's policies castigating them for their attitude and recommending a wholesale change in the way the country deals with migrancy. However, there might be some interesting cultural similarities across the Nordics. In a recent study of expatriates in 52 countries... Denmark, Norway, and Sweden were all ranked amongst the hardest places to settle in. Now, this study didn't look at economic factors or the size of the welfare state, but on a self-reported sense of welcome and cultural openness in these societies. It seems like many European countries
2: have changed their attitude on refugees since the Ukraine war began. Do you think that might change attitudes in Denmark? And if it doesn't, could anything?
6: Well, the recent arrival of Ukrainian refugees has cast a different light on the Danish plans for asylum externalisation. So Danish politicians, when the war began, were all agreed that Ukrainians should not be subject to these plans. In fact, Markus Knuth, the migration spokesperson for the Danish Conservatives, was very blunt. He said that Denmark should, and I quote, open its arms as widely to Ukrainians as Denmark was hard and rejecting of African migrants. Marie Stender, a researcher studying the effects of ghetto evictions in Copenhagen, told me she'd seen some evidence that resentment had been building from non-white refugee groups over the perceived preferential treatment of others. When I visited Mjoldeparken, though, I was met with more sadness than anger. People who were facing eviction told me that regardless of where the government offered them alternative housing, they were losing their community. It was also clear when I spoke to some younger second and third generation Danes that the country's ethnicity-based policies made them question whether they would ever truly be accepted in their own society. All right, John Joe, thanks for coming around to the other side of the microphone today. Thank you, John. A pleasure.
7: Keith Jarrett, the very great piano player about whom the word genius has often been used, has a new album out called Bordeaux Concert.
0: Sebastian Scotney writes about music for The Economist.
7: It was from his last European tour in 2016. In tracks like Part 3, you get a really lyrical side. He was not an easy man, but in those moments of real genius, you could really feel something in the hall. V.E. Day. Keith Jarrett, almost coincidentally, was born on V.E. Day in 1945. He's from Allentown in Pennsylvania. He probably made his first mark in a venue called the Deerhead Inn. He made a sensation in the early stages. Art Blakey, who was like the ultimate finishing school for jazz musicians, heard him sitting in on a date and instantly offered him the role of pianist in his group. Miles Davis had him for a brief while but wanted him to play Fender Rhodes rather than acoustic grand piano and that didn't really last long. There's an association with Charles Lloyd and his quartet and a wonderful live album from Monterey. So in his early stages, he was just impressing people with an extraordinarily innovative approach There's no question that Jarrett had something different. In the solo piano albums, all the musicians in America that I ever talked to remember the album from 1972 called Facing You. And he was doing something very different. A major development came through the boss of the ECM label, Manfred Eicher, who introduced him to three Norwegian musicians. There are a series of albums that were made for the UCM label with this group, including the saxophonist Jan Garbarek. There's a track like The Wind Up. is something that people really respond to. That was a very special trio. You had Pella Danielson, who was perhaps the most instinctive bass player there's ever been, and he and Jarrett struck up a very good relationship. Jarrett had strokes in early 2018, and is essentially no longer playing. It's a very sad thing. He had a bout of chronic fatigue syndrome in the mid 1990s. A wonderful line. It's not healthy being both the ventriloquist and the dummy. In other words, making his own things all the way and making his own the way he moved at the piano. Every physiotherapist and I would imagine every doctor told him just told him what he was doing was unhealthy and therefore it's almost like he'd been expecting things to go wrong. Certainly in the 2016 tour and this Bordeaux concert, he had a physiotherapist working with him. When Jarrett was playing, he made a point that nothing was easy. He always was a difficult taskmaster on himself. And there are these legendary outbursts when people were coughing or when people were trying to tape him, that he would absolutely burst out in anger. So he was somebody who made it difficult. This album has actually launched a really interesting debate. Jarrett certainly is there among the very greatest of jazz pianists for the last few decades. And who would be the others? Probably the first name that you come up with is Herbie Hancock. What's interesting is how they are, in a sense, polar opposites. But in terms of being a complete one-off improviser and going places which are experimental, then Jarrett is your man.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts.
0: And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.